Please pray with me. O oh God, we confess that our Lord Jesus Christ is risen, risen indeed by the power of your Holy Spirit. Raise our hearts now by your same Spirit that we may truly hear your word with faith and joy. Amen. Today I will be reading Psalm 22, verses 25 through 31. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. To him indeed shall all who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, and I shall live for him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord and proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying that he has done it. These are, this is the word of the Lord. Who can tell me what I'm going to say? Back to the basics. Can I get an amen? Okay, good. You've been here. Back to the basics. That's the journey that I've told you that I'm on as a pastor and as a person wanting to live a life of prayer. But back to the basics is also the journey we're been, we've been going on together with St. John, Pastor John, John the Evangelist as our guide, leading us through uh, that little letter of 1 John in the back of our New Testament. Over the weeks, John's given us a basic understanding of what a life of faith centers down on. Fellowship with God, Father, Son, in the Spirit. John's given us a basic task. Live a life that is congruent. Walk the talk. John has given us a basic identity. Beloved, we are God's children. Now, called to live out the implications of that living with love in action, right? John's been bringing us back to the basics over these weeks. And this morning, this morning, John might say the most basic thing of all. John might make the most basic claim of all. John might pronounce the most basic thing in the Christian life and also perhaps the thing that is hardest for us to actually believe and live into and lay hold of. So listen carefully and listen well, for this too is God's word for us. Beloved, let us love one another. Because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, 
for God is love. God's love has been revealed among us in this way. God sent His Son into the world that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and gave His Son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God has loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God if we love one another, God lives in us. And his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. And so we have seen and do testify that the Father has sent the Son as the Savior of the world. God abides in those who confess Jesus as the Son of God, and they abide in God. So we have known and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And those who abide in love abide in God, and God abides in them. God's love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness on the day of judgment. For as he is, so are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. And everyone who fears has not reached perfection in love. We love, we love because he first loved us. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers and sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they've seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. The commandment we have from him is this. Those who love God must love God their brothers and sisters also. Dear friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. We say, thanks be to God. So Father, we ask once again that as we lay our lives open before your open word, you would act and do what only you can in the power of your spirit, which is to make this a word for us and a way in which we hear the voice of your love incarnate, the living word Jesus, revealing himself and inviting us to live in him. We ask this together in his name and we say, Amen. Repetition indicates importance. Repetition indicates importance. So when the Beatles sing, I want to hold your hand again and again and again in that old song, we start to get like the picture of what's important here, what they really want to hold, to touch, to have. Right? Repetition indicates importance. So when the coach told you, 
Do the drill again. Give me the layup again. Show me the pass again. When the band instructor says, play the line again and again and again, we start to get the idea right, that, that we have to get this simple task grilled into us. Repetition indicates importance. So when my son Ephraim down the hall says over and over, can we have a treat? Daddy, do I get a treat? Do we get a treat? I start to understand that dessert is really important to his belly, right? Repetition indicates importance. So when year after year, Sunday after Sunday, we gather in here and I say, believe the good news of the gospel, and you say, in Jesus Christ we are forgiven, we start to get the sense that maybe this forgiveness thing is actually central to it all. Repetition indicates importance. It's a lesson you know because I've told you this before and because you've lived it in life. And so if that lesson holds true, really, all the time, there are two words that demand our attention in the verses we just heard this morning. And I'm betting you can guess the first word. Love. 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 No less than 27 times in those 15 verses. 27 times in that little passage. John says, John declares, John proclaims the word love. Agape, agapao, love. Verse 7, beloved, let us love one another. Verse 8, whoever does not love does not know God. Verse 9, God's love was revealed among us in this way. Verse 10, in this is love. Verse 11, beloved, since God loved us so much. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God if we love one another. Verse 16, so we have known and believed the love God has for us. And the most demanding, the most commanding, the most grabbing proclamation of, of all declared not just once, but twice. God is love. In case we hadn't figured it out before in this letter, in everything John's been saying, like last week when John says, in this is love, we know love by this, in case we haven't figured it out before, the repetition here indicates the importance of love in everything. This is a love letter. I mean, First John is a love letter. Not in the sense of my best friend in middle school slipping the note in our classmate Dana's locker, not that kind of love letter, or the AOL instant message that I sent her at a later date, I think I kind of sort of like you, sixth grade, right? I did not get a favorable response, by the way. <laughs> it's not that kind of love letter. But it is a love letter in the sense that it's a letter that reveals that at the very center and core of everything about our relationships with each other and our fellowship with God, is love. 
For, for God is love. There's, there's maybe nothing more basic that John says in this pastoral letter than this. Nothing more basic to our understanding as Christians and maybe nothing harder for us to really believe and live into and lay hold of. God is love. So because it's so basic and so hard, maybe it's, it's worth just making a clarification. Um, that is, let us be clear about something John does not say love is God, but God is love. John does not say love is God, which maybe just sounds like a silly switcheroo of words, simple semantics, means the same thing. All the same words are there, right? But there are extreme implications to the change. To say something like love is God is an ambiguous statement at best that uh, holds up love as this extreme virtue that I can define in any way I'd like. To hold up love as God is to hold up love as this this one all-encompassing thing that is so important, and that I can then live out however I'd like. To say love is God is to make love an idol that is fashioned after what I like and that functions as an object of my desire and worship. It's the very opposite of what John says, but I do think it's often what we do, right? And how we we, we make love a god. I mean, we love love. And we love it to be shaped like a Nicholas Sparks novel or a Netflix drama in which the romance is thick and everyone's beautiful and somehow, even if there's pain, it all just seems to work in the end. And then we look at our own loving relationships and wonder why we don't look like that. Why these things don't look like that. And we keep pining for that illusion of love. We love love. And we fashion it after our political fancies or cultural dispositions so that real love looks like focus on the family, leave it to beaver style. Or progressive pronouncements that love is being who you want, with who you want, however you want, as long as it doesn't interfere with my wants. We love love, and we plaster the word through school hallways, and we put it in ad campaigns, expecting everybody to know what it means, when in fact we're just putting whatever meaning we want onto it. We, we love love. We make love this idol we bow before. Listen to how Eugene Peterson puts this in his letter, Christ Plays in 10,000 Places. Peterson writes, Love is one of the slipperiest words in the language 
There is no other word in our society more messed up, misunderstood, perverted, and misused as the word love. Complicating things even further, it is a word terribly vulnerable to cliché, more often than not flattened into non-meaning by chatter and gossip. It is all me-directed. It is all self. The largeness of love is reduced to the mouse hole of the ego. It is often used by the same person and in the same conversation in self-contradicting ways, seriously and frivolously, soberly and sentimentally, thoughtfully and teasingly. It's used in the worship of a holy God and as a euphemism for loveless sex. It's used to reveal heart intimacies and commitments and as a cover for telling every sort and variety of lie. An incalculable amount of violence, both emotional and physical, occurs in relationships begun in love. In no other human experience do we fail so frequently, get hurt so badly, suffer so excruciatingly, get deceived so cruelly as in love. Still, we continue to long for love, dream of it, attempt it. We love love. We love the idea of love. We love the notion of love. We love love shaped however we like it. Have it your way with a side of fries. We make love a god. So let us be clear. John does not say love is God. John is not ambiguous. John doesn't offer us love however we'd like it. John is very concrete. John says, God is love. Which is to say, if you want to know what love looks like, really, if you want to know what love sounds like, truly, if you want to know what love tastes like, then you have to look at, listen to, and receive what God has. Because God in God's very action toward us is love. God's actions are love. In the garden, when we tripped all over ourselves in sin and tried to hide and cover up our nakedness and shame, what does God do? But find us. Where are you? And cover our shame because God is love. That's what it looks like. So when we were in bondage in Egypt, for 400 years crying out, God heard our cries and said, I have come down to deliver you because God is love. That's what it looks like. So when David murdered and betrayed and became an adulterer and tricked and repented, God said there will be consequences, but I will not take my covenant from you because God is love. That's what it looks like. So when the widow and Zarephath and her son and Elisha are going to starve, God makes the oil never run dry, the flour never run out, that they might eat and live because God is love. That's what it looks like. God clothing the naked. God liberating the prisoner. God restoring the repentant. 
God feeding the hungry. And in the fullness of time, John says, God's love gets concrete and actualized and takes on flesh and blood and looks like this. God sent his son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God. It isn't beginning with us but that he loved us and sent the Son as the atoning sacrifice for our sins, to be the one stripped so that we might be covered in his righteousness, to be the one who's a prisoner and hung so that we might be set free from sin, to be the one who takes on the guilt so that we might be restored and repentant, to be the one who's hungry and thirsty so that we might be fed with his love and mercy. That's what love looks like. To know God is to know this one, Father, Son, and Spirit, whose every action, always and in all ways, is love toward us. And all other loves, all other love is meant to be measured against him against the one who is love incarnate, Christ. So you can take that test to the novel that you read and to the Netflix drama you watch and to the relationship you're in and to the school hallway you walk to say, does this in some way measure up to the one who is love? This is how love is defined for us. It's not ambiguous. It's flesh and blood. Jesus. Love is formed in the heart of the Father and displayed in the action of the Son. And it's that demonstration of God's love toward us that then calls forth our own demonstrations of love and requires a habitation of love. It's that demonstration of God's love that calls forth from us a demonstration and requires a habitation. Uh, it, it calls forth a demonstration on our part. I mean, this is actually what John's letter here is all about. This is the thrust of his argument that we love like God because we've been loved by God, period. This is actually what John is pushing us to do, to live lovely lives because we're called the beloved. That's it. For no other reason than that we've been loved by God and we're the children of God. In fact, he lays out, he says, it can't be any other reason, including um, that you're afraid of consequences. Which maybe sounds really basic, like, okay, and yet how often do we hear from others or in our own hearts that Christians try to do the right thing or love in order to get God's love or to stay away from the consequences of not doing the right thing, hell, right? Because we're afraid of something. John says there's no love in fear, because fear has to do with punishment. You might get somebody, an employee, to do the right thing because they're afraid of the consequences, and so too you might get a Christian to do the right thing because they're afraid of the consequences, but John says there's no love in that. 
We don't love because we, we, we're trying to earn God's love. We don't love because we're afraid of God's wrath. We love because we've already been loved by God. We've already known it. We, we, we live lovely lives because we've already been called the beloved. In fact, John goes so far to say that while we can't see God, we can see one another. In fact, do this for me. Look at one another. You see each other. John says, we can't see God, but we can see one another. And when we seek to love one another with Jesus-shaped love, God lives in us. And his love is perfected in us so that our life together actually becomes like a window into the heart of the Father, a living demonstration of God's love. He's calling us to demonstrate the love we've known. There might be nothing more basic than this, that God is love, and because we're the children of God, we're called to love. That might be the most basic thing John says, and the most basic thing we can know as Christians, and yet also one of the hardest for us to believe, and live into, and lay hold of. Which is why we need to know that God has first come to live in us. Um, some of you know that as part of my Doctor of Ministry studies, I conducted 11 interviews last fall of folks here at Mount Horb. Some of you were the interviewees. Um, it was an awesome time of asking questions and learning things. And, and one of the, the things that I have come to believe and that I'm testing out is a self-understanding that Mount Horeb has. I did these interviews to try and understand more of who you think you are and where you've been and what you believe. And one of the self-understandings that I saw is that Mount Horeb sees itself as a household. A habitation. I came to that, actually, from something Larry Van Leer said. In an interview, among other things, Larry was saying, Larry said, Mount Horeb is kind of like home. I don't know if you remember that, Larry. <laughs> That's what you said. I have it on tape. Um, and as I reflected on that line, I started to hear that theme resonate in all the other interviews that were done. This idea of Mount Horeb as a household, as a home. A household of belonging, where connections are made. A household of service, where you learn to care. Even a household of uncertainty, where some of the future is unclear, but a household. The gospel insistence that needs to be laid upon that, however, is that Mount Horeb is not a household that belongs to itself. It's not your household. Doesn't matter how long you've worshipped here or how much money you've given or who your family was. Doesn't matter that some of the founding documents say uh, we have made for ourselves a commodious house of worship. It's not your house. According to the gospel, the church is a house built on the cornerstone 
Christ, who has come to abide, dwell in you, and in whom you now dwell. I told you there were two words, right, that call for our attention in this letter. The first word is love. The second word is abide. By this we know we abide in him and he in us. God abides in those who confess Jesus is the Son. God is love in those who abide in love, abide in God. God abides in them. It means to dwell in, to live in, to make a house in. You are a house built on Christ who abides in you, and you abide in him through the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that means in relationship to everything else we've heard is that His love, then, if you are built on him and he in you, is never out of reach. His love is never out of grasp. That love of Jesus is never something that is impractical or unpracticable. But in fact, when you love one another, he lives in you and his love is perfected in you. So what might that perfect love look like in this house? You have stories. Tell them. What does that perfect love look like here? And what would it look like to carry it out there into our community? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.